Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Sabbath. Good morning, everybody else, and happy Sabbath to everybody else. <laughs> I'm glad you're here with me this morning. Listen, uh, the message is best served today by, by reminding ourselves of a psychological phenomenon that's happening all the time to every one of us. As soon as I begin to describe it, you'll say, yeah, that, that I know that that happens to me all the time. Now, we're not conscious of it. We're not processing this while it's happening, but it's happening nonetheless. Imagine that you're sitting in your home in your favorite chair and, and you're reading a book. Well, there's music playing, maybe Beethoven's Third Symphony. There's cookies being baked in the kitchen and the aroma's coming out and you smell the cookies. And, and out of your peripheral vision, there are birds dancing in midair right outside the window. You are surrounded with sensory stimuli. You're touching the book. You're smelling the cookies. You're glimpsing the birds. You're surrounded with sensory stimuli. And as you're sitting there, you decide you need to do something. You have some kind of mission you need to execute somewhere else in your house. So you get up and you begin moving through the house and, and out of the room that you're in, down a hall, and you enter a room and as you enter the room, you might, if you're over 40, say to yourself, what did I come here for? <laughs> and you do something maybe that I do. You freeze frame the moment and you just kind of retrace your steps and you go back where you began, where you were surrounded with all the sensory stimuli when you thought of what you were going to do. And maybe the birds, maybe the cookies, maybe the music, maybe your memory will be triggered. Every single thing that happens to us is always taking place within the context of sensory stimuli. And that sensory stimuli is, is the, the matrix in which all of our memories are lodged. I mean, you may hear a song today that you heard 20 years ago when you stood on a beach with someone you loved and, and laughed your heads off together. And you'll be transported back to that experience because the song will trigger that memory. So what's happening with us is something that I'd like to share with you is, is happening all the time. It's happened to me and it happened to Jesus. Now, when I was a little boy, maybe eight years old, um, I was at my grandmother's house during the summer months. And there were a bunch of my cousins there, as well as my two younger brothers, my younger sister. And we were just having a great time at grandma's house. It was also my grandpa's house, but I don't know why we never acknowledged him as an occupant of the place. But it was grandma's house. So there we were at our grandmother's house. And every morning we would wake up to the aroma of what she called cakes on the griddle, pancakes. Oh, it was a good smell. And us children would just rush the kitchen to get in line for her to take our orders because my grandmother was a pancake artist. She had multiple bowls and she used food coloring to make the batter different colors. That's before we knew it caused cancer. 
And she had different sized ladles and you can order anything. You can say, I want a dolphin. I want an elephant. I want a platypus, whatever. And she would do her pancake artistry on the griddle and make pancakes and serve them to us children. Well, on this particular morning, we were running around waiting for pancakes playing hide and seek. And as we were playing hide and seek, I ended up in a predicament that no eight-year-old wants to find himself in. I couldn't find a hiding place because there were so many cousins and brothers and sister that all the good hiding places, in fact, all the hiding places in the house were taken. And I had nowhere to go. Now, you need to understand something about my grandmother. My grandma was the real deal. She was a, she was a real grandma, not like some of these young grandmas we see nowadays. She was a real grandma. She was kind of tall, large framed. She had long gray hair that was all turned around and put in a bun on top of her head with a couple of sticks. My grandmother made all of her own dresses from the same pattern on a treadle sewing machine with no electricity. My grandmother had her teeth in a jar by the bed. (laughs) And she would sometimes drop those teeth from her gums in her mouth, leaning down to us children and let them kind of clank around in her mouth like a horror movie in her mouth. And we would scream and run. And we would then do it again because it was just so funny, though terrifying. My grandmother had a loaded shotgun by the front door. She said it was in case any Democrats came around. I didn't know what that meant. But this was my grandma. She was a real grandma, the way grandmas used to be. And she was standing there in the kitchen making cakes on the griddle. And she saw that I was in the predicament, standing there, my lips quivering. I'm about to cry because there's nowhere to hide. She says, what's wrong, Ty? There's nowhere to hide, Grandma. I can't find anywhere to hide. All the hiding. And my cousin is counting up 95, 96. And I'm about to get caught. And my grandma says to me as she just stands there casually making pancakes, she says, Ty, do you want the best hiding place on earth? I said, yes. She said, Ty, I will give you the best hiding place on earth, but I am telling you, whatever you do when you get there, do not look up. (laughs) And then my grandmother lifted her dress and gave one motion with her spatula, and I realized where she wanted me to go, and I thought, that is the best hiding place on earth. And I slid to home base, and she dropped the dress around me, and there I was, as she just stood there casually making pancakes. Everybody was found but me, and then all the cousins and the siblings were saying, where's Ty, where's Ty? We've looked in all the hiding places. We can't find him. And my grandmother said, maybe he's outside. And I heard the front screen door, the back screen door open and slam, and then she whispered, okay, Ty, they're gone. And she lifted her dress again, and I emerged, and she said, told you, best hiding place on earth. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) And here I am telling you. Well, my grandmother was amazing, and I can't even describe to you how much I loved her. Because my grandmother's house was a refuge for me and my brothers and my sister that summer. 
We had just driven from Los Angeles, California all night to get to Phoenix, Arizona to grandmother's house with my mother driving having received her last beating in a marriage that she had tried so long to work up the courage to end. And while we were playing hide-and-seek and eating pancakes, my mom, 26 years of age, was lying on one of my grandmother's beds with multiple wounds in the process of healing. And the high emotions of that escape and what she was going through embedded in my consciousness forever the memory of my beautiful grandmother and to this day I can never smell pancakes without thinking of her and that summer and that refuge that her love not just her home was for us children and for her daughter my mother well Jesus was blessed by an encounter with a person who understood that he would need to remember that somebody loves him. Now the story occurs in Matthew chapter 26 and it's important that you follow the story in order for the punchline to make sense. Here we have in scripture a story in which the storyteller, Matthew, is using a looping technique. He's going to tell one part of the story, then he's going to back up and say, hey, come over here to another part of the story that's occurring simultaneously. So scripture tells us that it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples. So he's with his disciples and they're walking along and he said, you know that after two days, please note, the chronology and the time frame involved. After two days is the Passover and the Son of Man, well, he's going to be delivered up and he's going to be crucified. He's telling the disciples this. Well, the disciples are silent because they're resisting this picture of the Messiah's work in favor of a militaristic Messiah that they want to take the Romans down and exalt Israel to the pinnacle of political power. So they're silent and then the story shifts and Matthew says, but while he's with the disciples telling them this, then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who is called Caiaphas. So now we're in another part of the story where something's taking place. Well, what's taking place? They plotted, they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. The religious leaders are engaged in this plot. And then, interestingly, they say, but, but let's not crucify him, let's not capture him, let's not kill him during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. These are religious people who are plotting the murder of God. So the first thing that we learn in the story is that religion is the best place in the world to hide from God. That, in fact, we can construct religious forms and theological paradigms that block off our perception of the real issues that are going on in the work of God in human hearts. 
They are literally using the religion that God bequeathed to them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in order to construct a militaristic, violent, coercive picture of God that will allow them to engage in violence themselves against a Messiah who is a threat to their power-mongering. Well, as the plot thickens, Jesus then, Matthew the storyteller says, but come back now from this plot that's taking place over to where Jesus with his disciples having made their journey, they've now arrived at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, Bethany is a familiar city for Jesus. He's been there often because he has some close friends there. And these friends of his, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, they compose a, a group of siblings with a home that Jesus has visited and he's eaten good food there and they've had good theological discussions and it's just a, it's just a nice place of reprieve from the press of the crowd for Jesus. But this time he's not at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He's at the home of Simon the leper because Simon is one of these religious leaders. He's one of the Pharisees. And what he's done is he is throwing a party for Jesus because Jesus has healed him of leprosy. And if you have leprosy and you get healed, you ought to party. So that's what he's doing. He's saying, hey, let's have a party. And Jesus is the honored guest. We're told also with a harmonizing of the gospels and incorporating in some of the ideas from Desire of Ages that Lazarus is also present for this party, for this feast. Now, you know what parties are like. I mean, you do, right? You're a Seventh-day Adventist, so you may not have been to one. But you know what parties are like. There's a lot of conversation and laughter and music, right? Hey, 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 pass the olive oil down here. What about that pita bread? What about that hummus, that baba ganoush? Pass it. There's a lot going on in a party. This house is full of people, right? That's what a party's like. This is a feast. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and with all the noise of the conversation, the laughter, the music in the background, suddenly a woman came to him having an alabaster flask full of very costly and fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. What just happened in your imagination at this party? Silence. This is a small town. Everybody knows who she is. Everybody knows her history. Everybody wonders if Simon has something to do with her history. People have whispered. She wasn't invited. Martha was probably the caterer for the event in that city. Lazarus was there as a honored guest because he had recently been raised from the dead. And if you get raised from the dead, you better party. So Lazarus is there, Jesus is there, and this woman with all the chatter and the, the laughter and the, she walks in and she just goes straight to Jesus and she pours this fragrant oil all over him. But when the disciples saw what she was doing, they pressed back on this act and they were indignant and they perceived what she was doing as waste. Why this, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. They really weren't concerned about the poor. They're doing like the Pharisees who were plotting his death. They're just doing religion. 
And again, religion is the best place in the world to hide from God. In fact, in the book Desire of Ages, Ellen White brilliantly observes that religion can be a way of forgetting God that passes for remembering him. That you and I can go through the motions of surface interest in religious matters while our hearts are untouched. In fact, I think pews are filled with people across America and around the world. Not everybody, but a lot of people, I think a lot of people are intellectual believers and emotional atheists. They believe all the right things and tick off all the right boxes, but they're not head over heels in love with God. Well, this woman who's come is head over heels in love. Something's happened. She's had an encounter with Jesus, and the disciples don't understand it. But when Jesus was aware that his disciples were, you know, grumbling about her lavish gift that is poured upon him, Jesus said, do not trouble the woman. Leave her alone. He's protective of her worship expression here, for she has done a good work for me. What they perceive as wasteful, he perceives as a good work that is being lavished upon him, and rightly so. For you will have the poor with you always, but I'm not going to be with you always. So in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Now this is the revelatory line in the narrative. Jesus indicates that this woman alone perceives that his constant refrain, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. The Romans are going to take me. The disciples don't believe it. Peter pushes back on it. Nobody is accepting a crucified, a dying, a self-sacrificing Messiah. Everybody wants coercion and force to be leveraged against their enemies. And this woman alone conceives an act in which she thinks, you know what? I think he's telling the truth. I think he's going to be captured. I think he's going to die just like he said. And her love for him just goes vertical with passion. And she says, I must do something for him. Now, Ellen White is just so, so insightful here. And she tells us what's happening, what's happening in the inner thinking process of this woman. Now, follow this carefully. The fragrant gift which Mary had thought to lavish upon the dead body of the Savior. Okay, so what was her original plan? When she gathered, gathered together all her money and she went and she purchased that fragrant oil, what was the original plan, the original intent? Okay, I'm going to lavish this oil on his dead body. Postmortem. That's the goal. Why? Because that is the culture. That's, they weren't embalming bodies. They were putting fragrant oils and herbs and spices upon the body of the deceased in order to mask the odor of decay and to honor the dead. But she breaks ranks with the cultural norm of post-mortem anointing. She had thought to lavish her gift upon the dead body of the Savior, but now she, she said, wait a minute, no, no, no. And she pours it upon his living form. 
his body in the party. She walks in and the fragrant oil that was intended for post-mortem anointing, she douses his head, his beard, his body. It's trickling. If you harmonize with Luke's gospel, after she dumps it on his head and his body, she gets down on her knees and she puts the oil on his feet and she takes up the excess with her hair and he is covered with this stuff head to toe. Well, why did she do this? At the burial, its sweetness, the sweetness of this fragrance, at the burial, its sweetness could only have pervaded the tomb. Now, by putting it upon him while he's alive, it gladdened his heart with the assurance of her faith and love. Mary pouring out her love upon the Savior while he was conscious of her devotion was anointing him for the burial. And as he went down into the darkness of his great trial, he, Jesus, carried with him the memory of that deed as an earnest of the love that would be his the love that would be his from his redeemed ones forever. Mary poured this oil upon him so that, so that the memory trigger with every breath he would take, that the memory trigger would be pulled and he would remember, Mary gets it. She loves me. She understands And so Jesus then follows up and says, assuredly, I say to you that wherever the gospel is preached in all the world, what this woman has done is is, is gonna be told. Her story has to be told over and over again. Why is her story so significant within the gospel narrative? I'll tell you why. Why does her story need to be told over and over again? Because Mary, according to Jesus, is a kind of prototype of the experience the gospel produces in all who receive it. Mary was not a religious extremist in this lavish act. She was experiencing Christian normality. And Christian normality is passionate. It is lavish. It is fired up for Jesus. It is loving him with every fiber of my being. Mary represents Christian experience at its normal level. She's not a religious nut. She's not a fanatic. She's head over heels in love with him. And why is she in love? Well, Luke's gospel tells us why she's in love. Because Jesus had lavished on her, not a fragrant oil, but Jesus had lavished on her the gift of a forgiveness that overwhelmed her with a sense that God loves me even though he knows everything about me. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. And so she has shown me much Love, but the person who's forgiven little, that is in their perception because we're all forgiven much. It's just a matter of whether or not we get it. Mary gets it. 
James, John, Peter, Thomas, Simon, they didn't get it at this point. She got it. She realized, what? He loves me with a forgiving, pardoning love that supersedes my sin. She's overwhelmed, and this is what I'm going to suggest to you because it's important to wrap language around what we're talking about here. This is what I'm going to suggest to you is the power equation of the gospel. Love begets love. We love him because he first loved us. His love is primary. Ours is secondary. His is creative. Ours is created. Jesus loved her and she realized it. The power equation of the gospel is that everyone who encounters the love of Christ in all its lavish beauty of forgiveness and mercy and grace, every person who encounters his love on that level falls in love with him. And Mary was having that experience. Ellen White says it this way in a powerful single line of concentrated theological brilliance. Ellen White says, only by love is love awakened. You can't try hard enough. Your willpower is not sufficient to overcome your guilt, your sin. You don't need to try harder. You need to have a more brilliant encounter with the love of God for your soul. And it will react in you like a chemical reaction, like a catalyst. It will set in motion a responsive love to him. She says it this way in another one-liner. Love is the agent God uses to expel sin from the heart. Not shame, not guilt, not obligation, not duty, not you better, you ought, you should. God loves us away from our sin into his love. And so Jesus went from Simon's feast as Matthew 26 unfolds and he goes to the upper room And he's surrounded with the disciples as they sit to eat the Passover meal together. And he's aware that Judas is about to betray him. And the pain of betrayal pierces his heart and then he breathes. And the oil all over him reminds him in its fragrance Judas, but there's Mary. He goes from that Passover feast and makes his way into Gethsemane. He falls to the ground, clutching at the dirt and the rocks as if to prevent himself from being separated further from the Father. He is in agony. He sweats great drops of blood in that garden, his blood mingling with the liquid of that fragrant oil, and Jesus breathes. And with every breath he takes in Gethsemane, he is reminded that Mary gets it, she gets it, she gets it, and others will too. They take him from Gethsemane. They nail him to the cross. 
And as he hangs there between heaven and earth, laboring in his breath to remain alive, Jesus, with every breath he takes, is reminded with the memory trigger of the sensory stimuli of that gift she is, she is speaking to him. Mary is there, Desire of Asia says she is literally there, while Peter's and John and, and Mary's right there looking up at him and he's looking down and he breathes and there she is and there's that fragrance and he's reminded. Jesus finally breathes his last breath inhaling that fragrance in his final breath remembering her love for him in response to his love for her. They lay him in the tomb and her intent that he would be anointed for the burial is fulfilled. He lays there for three days in the tomb and then he comes to conscious life again And I don't know if you've thought about this, but what's the first thing you do when you've been dead for a while and you wake up to life? You breathe. And he takes in a massive breath of resurrection life, and there she is. Again, in his memory, oh yes, his first thought, Mary. The stone is rolled away, he exits the tomb and Peter's not there and John's not there and James isn't there. But you know who's actually there? Mary's there. She is his first encounter after the resurrection. She throws her arms around him. He says, don't, don't, I'm glad to see you too, but don't hold me back because I haven't ascended to my father yet. I'm going to ascend to my father and I'm coming back. And then Jesus ascends to the throne room of the universe and it is pervaded with the fragrance of Mary's gift. And all the angels, according to Ellen White and Desire of Ages, bow before him and begin to worship him. And he refuses their worship. Tells them to get up. And he says to the Father, is the sacrifice acceptable? Can those whom you have given me be with me here where I am? And the Father says, well done. (laughs) It was beautiful and they can be here. And now he has the assurance of your salvation and mine. The angels begin to worship him again. And this time he receives their worship. Because in the words of desire of ages, he did not count even heaven itself a place to be desired while we were lost. Father in heaven, thank you for your love displayed toward us in Christ. May we love you back like Mary did. In Jesus' name, amen.